Hi everyone, good to see you here at the EU public meeting. If I haven't met you before, I'm Rowan Kemp. Uh, I, I work in friendly partnership here with the EU. I'm a chaplain here at the university and so I'm here uh, Monday to Friday, 48 weeks of the year. Which means a lot of the time you're not even here. But you know, one wonders what I do in those times. You'd have to come and ask me to find out. Now, this week is the University of Sydney Union Interfaith Week. This is the inaugural Interfaith Week put on by our University Union. That's a fantastic new initiative, I think. I think it's great that as a university we've been encouraged to think about different faiths. As it happens here at the EU public meetings, this year we've been working through, in various sort of clumps throughout the year, the New Testament book, the book of Romans, letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Roman Christians. As it happens, at the beginning of the year I was allocated certain weeks to help us reflect on this book of Romans and it just happened that I planned this sort of week of the year that we'd be looking at Romans chapter 9 to 11. At that point in time we knew nothing about Interfaith Week. We didn't know when it would be. As it happens, if I had to choose a passage from the New Testament to use as a sort of meditation for Interfaith Week, there is not a better passage you could pick than Romans chapters 9 to 11. It is like the, one of the great interfaith sort of sections of the New Testament. It just happens that that beautifully aligns with Interfaith Week. Now, you might, you'd say at that point, well, how has that happened? Is that just fortuitous? Is it because fortune with a capital F has somehow worked it that the EU public meeting will look at this great interfaith chapter during interfaith. You might say, well, no, I don't believe in any great fortune, capital F, out there. It's just coincidence. Well, well, my opinion, and I'm speaking today as an invited sort of card-carrying, committed evangelical Christian, for me, no, this is an example maybe of providence. This is, you know, the one true living God, his providence, with a capital P, over all things, such that we come to this particular week and guess what? We're looking at a great interfaith passage. So this passage that we're going to be looking at today, Romans chapters 9 to 11, it is useful when thinking about interfaith issues for two reasons. First of all, because in this chapter, the Apostle Paul talks a lot about the contemporary relationship between two great historic faiths, Christianity and Judaism. Now, when I say contemporary, he's talking in his own day. But for the Apostle Paul, as he writes about Judaism and Christianity, for him, the big, the big event that defines the age in which he lives is the death of Jesus of Nazareth. He's writing after the death of Jesus of Nazareth and as a Christian, Paul is, believes that Jesus, who was killed, was also raised from the dead. So he's writing in this period for him of Jesus after Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the age and he's writing about Judaism and Christianity in light of this event. Now, in a New Testament framework, we are still in the same age as the Apostle Paul. Hence, his observations about Judaism and Christianity, even though, yes, they are millennia old, they are still contemporary for us because we exist in a New Testament world, a New Testament perspective, in the same great age. We are after the death and resurrection of this Jesus of Nazareth. 
So his observations on the interactions between these two great faiths is going to be very relevant to today. But there's a second way that these chapters are very helpful for us when thinking about interfaith issues. That is, what we can do is we can step back and look at the way the Apostle Paul talks about these two great faiths and that provides us with a a paradigm, a Christian paradigm or model for interfaith interactions. Now, that is going to be very interesting to us as we engage in an interfaith week here at university because the whole week is about how do you interact with other faiths? How do you conduct such interfaith dialogue? So, we're going to start with this second paradigmatic sort of question and then we're going to get into the detail of these two specific faiths. But as we launch into all of that, I'm just going to pray a brief prayer for all of us that we might understand these things today from God in his word. Living God and Heavenly Father, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you might grant us minds to understand your word today as you've delivered it to us in these scriptures so that we might know you, know your purposes and plans and understand how we might live in accord with what you have set in train. We pray it for Jesus' name's sake and in the power of your spirit. Amen. Now, if you've got a Bible there, that would be super helpful. If you don't, you might be able to look on with someone's phone next to you or something, call it up on your phone. Let's start by thinking about interfaith interactions. Interfaith dialogue is all very trendy at the moment in our society and I can sort of understand why. Interfaith interactions are quite interesting. Now, I don't know if you think they're interesting but maybe that's because you haven't actually engaged with people of other faiths and I encourage you to This week here at Sydney Uni is a great opportunity to do that. When you actually take the time to understand someone else's world view, their faith, it is very, very interesting. I'll tell you why. Because the questions of faith, the world view that faith tries to capture, that answers the biggest questions of human existence and life. It is not as though we have science here, we have sociology here, we have history here, literature here, politics here and faith over here. That's actually not how faith operates. Faith attempts to provide a universal framework in which fits all other knowledge. So therefore if you understand someone's faith, someone's (coughs) world view, that actually is the framework in which they understand history and science and sociology and literature and politics. So once you start to understand someone's faith, it is terribly interesting because it gives you, and this is the second point, gives you a real insight into what they, how they think the world operates, an insight into not just what they think but also how they think they should live, we should live, the world should be. It's terribly interesting and it gives you sometimes profound insight. However, I want to suggest to you this afternoon, and maybe this is a little bit controversial, that the way we do interfaith interactions at the moment, whilst it's interesting, whilst it's potentially insightful, it is actually quite innocuous. That's because I think we have made interfaith interactions quite lame. And I don't mean lame in the sense of, oh, that's lame. I mean in the sense of, we've sort of given it a dead leak such that interfaith interactions are now hobbling around. They are not very 
They're not achieving very much. They're interesting and insightful maybe, but, but not really achieving what could be achieved. Now, I'm suggesting this to you because I think here in these chapters of Romans chapters 9 to 11, we see a different paradigm for thinking about the questions about interfaith dialogue. When we look at here what the, how the Apostle Paul approaches the dialogue between Judaism and Christianity. So, what are some of the things we can draw out from this paradigm? Let's see this paradigm. There's four aspects to it. Let's look at them briefly. First of all, one of the things you note when you look at these particular chapters in the New Testament and Paul's model for interfaith interactions is there is no pretending that everyone is right. This is almost a, a, a presupposition these days in interfaith dialogue. You, I'm, I'm interested in what you think and I'll hear what you think and I'll hear what you think but I'm, the one thing I'm not allowed to do is say, I believe you are wrong in that belief. I believe you are mistaken in that belief. That's the one thing you're not allowed to do. If you do that, you're then suddenly labelled as intolerant because we've actually taken the word tolerant and sort of so twisted it, put a particular bias on it, such that now tolerance equals I have to say you're right in your belief. Now, the reason we can do that in interfaith dialogue is because beneath is an assumption about all matters of faith that they are purely subjective. That faith really is the same as ice cream. You believe hokey pokey is the best ice cream that exists. You believe that mint choc chip is and I believe that plain old vanilla is. And you know what? I can't claim that no vanilla is objectively the best. That's just silly, right? Because we don't, no, 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 it's, an, it's a subjective just a, I'm right, you're right, we're both right, saying it's the best because there's no objective truth. And we say these days in our society, faith is like that. It is purely subjective. There is no objective reality behind these. Such that one might be right and others might be wrong. But you know the funny thing about that? Whilst that's a deep assumption in our society, uh, as a chaplain here at the university, I know the other chaplains of the other faiths. We meet together. We're having a meeting in a few weeks' time. And the, the, the ironic thing is, whilst a deep assumption of our society and this university is really that faith is just a matter of personal opinion there's no objective reality behind it, if you lined up all the university chaplains this afternoon along the front here, who I get on really well with all of them, and you said to the, the, all these different chaplains, do you think, any of you think that you're all right, that everyone is right. The one thing that we all agree on, the one thing, well there's two things, but the one thing is, one thing is that we all think that the others can't all be right. None of us believe that everyone else is right. And we're the university chaplains. We know faith is not like ice cream. As a friend of mine put it, we know faith is like a government bus. <laughs> that is, you know, when you step out onto Parramatta Road or City Road and there's a government bus coming down at you. You don't go, well, you think there's a government bus there, but I think it's very false. <laughs> I believe that will have no impact upon me because it's just very false. So you go, no, it's not ice cream, it's a government bus. There is an objective reality behind this. 
If you ask the university chaplains, we will all say, no, this is in the government bus category. This is a government bus truth, not an ice cream truth. The second thing, by the way, that we all agree on is that it is good to have vigorous and respectful discussion about this matter, therefore. That's the second thing we agree on. So, first thing we want to say is, you see this paradigm here, that there is no pretending that all are right. Let's look at that, chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Paul says this, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved, for I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. A couple of things he's saying there about the Israelites, the Jewish faith, speaking as someone who comes from a Jewish background but has now got faith in this Jesus, that is now a Christian, he's saying my heart's desire and prayer for the Jews, for the Israelites, is that they may be saved and that his analysis of that is at the moment there is a gap in their understanding, in their knowledge. That's not a very PC thing to say, is it? That at the moment this particular faith, it is not on the right track, it will not lead actually tragically to salvation, there is a gap in their understanding. See, Paul does not say everyone is right. We don't pretend everyone is right. But along with that, and this is critical, there is no arrogant superiority. No arrogant superiority. Chapter 11, verses 18 to 20. See what he says here. He says, Do not consider yourself, speaking to non-Jews who have become Christians, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches, speaking of the Jews. If you do, consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith, that is by belief, do not be arrogant but tremble for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. That is, Paul is at pains to point out, do not be arrogant here in calling yourself a Christian. There's no place for arrogant superiority here. You are here just by God's sheer mercy. So any interfaith conversation, whilst we don't pretend everyone is right, it must be characterised, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, with no arrogant superiority, but a deep grasp of God's mercy. But there's two more things that we can draw out of these chapters about this. Secondly, uh, thirdly, there is a genuine invitation here to all to embrace this truth. That is, and this is a bit outrageous, Paul's interfaith interactions, part of it is actually an invitation to people to swap teams, to actually adopt this faith and leave behind another. Which again, is not very politically correct, I know. But it, it follows actually sensibly from the fact that we don't pretend everyone is... is on the right track. You can see this in chapter 10, verses 9 to 14. Chapter 10, 9 to 14. Paul says, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Paul's interfaith dialogue is characterised by this genuine invitation to everyone, whether from whatever background, to embrace this truth about Jesus. And yet, this invitation comes motivated by a genuine, heartfelt concern. Right? It doesn't come from arrogant superiority, it comes out of a genuine, heartfelt concern. You saw that there in chapter 10, verse 1. He says, My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. We saw it last week in chapter 9, verses 1 to 4, where he talks about how he, he's, he is uh, deeply troubled by the fact that the Israelites have rejected their Christ, that is Jesus, and he wishes he himself could be cut off from Christ if it could mean their salvation. Right? This then, I think, is a paradigm we see here in the New Testament for interfaith interactions. And it's a little bit different to what goes on in our society But I think if we adopted this sort of paradigm, this Christian paradigm, not only would interfaith interactions be interesting, not only would they be even insightful, but it may actually lead to relevance. Relevance for each each, each person. You say, actually, we're talking about here about government but truth, things that actually really matter to each individual is not a matter just of subjective taste. This is deeply relevant to every individual and it gives us a model for moving ahead with that. So, now that we've put that in place, what does Paul actually say about the relationship between these two historic faiths, between Judaism and Christianity? Let's have a bit of a look at that. So, let's move on. Judaism and, as I've got there, it's not really Judaism and Christianity so much as Judaism and Christ. The big defining point between Judaism and Christianity is over whether the Christ, the Jewish Christ, the promised Messiah predicted in the Jewish scriptures, whether that person is Jesus of Nazareth. That's the big question. And that, how you answer that question determines whether you are an adherent to Judaism or whether you're an adherent to Christianity. It's over a person. So, what does Paul say here? Well, four things. First of all, he makes the observation, even though this is not terribly politically correct, but remember it happens within the framework that we've just explored, that contemporary Judaism has, he says, stumbled. Have a look at chapter 9, verse 30, to chapter 10, around about verse 4. 9.30, he says, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel, who pursued the law as a way of righteousness, have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. And on he goes. You pick it up, verse 3. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Okay, so Paul is saying a couple of things here in this little section. Let's get them clear. First of all, he says that the Jews have pursued the law without faith in the Christ. I'm going to draw a time for a picture of this. When he talks about the law, he's talking about the law that God gave his people, the Israelites, the old covenant people of God, at Mount Sinai. 
He gave the law to them. What he's observing is, when Jesus came, and I represent Jesus by a cross, Jesus, who Paul claims to be the Jewish Messiah, that is, the Jewish promised one, who would come anointed one, they had decided to not put their faith in this Christ. He's speaking in generalities, right? They've rejected this Christ. So what they are doing now, in a post-Jesus death and resurrection situation, is that they are pursuing the law without Jesus, without faith. And he represent, I'm going to represent that as this over here. And I'll make clear why in a moment. They are pursuing the law without faith in the Christ. He says they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. The stumbling stone being an Old Testament reference is a, is a picture of the Christ and he's saying they have stumbled over this person Jesus and not decided to put their faith in him. How does that then play out? Well, he says there's two, two issues with this. First of all, he says, Christ, the Christ, the figure of the Christ, was actually the goal of the law or the end of the law. He uses the word end. End can mean termination, but when he says Christ is the end of the law, I think he means here the end as in the goal, the one to, to whom, towards whom the law was pointing saying that Christ was all the time promised in the law and the prophets. So to be an adherent to the law, but then to reject the Christ, that's a bit, that doesn't make much sense, right? Because the law was pointing towards this Christ. The Christ was the goal of the law. So that's the first problem with this approach, to have the law without the Christ. But secondly, the law has testified right throughout the Old Testament Scriptures that the way you adhere to the law, is fundamentally a matter of the heart. Yes, it means that you obey the different laws, but that obedience was an outworking of a fundamental heart relationship with God, a relationship of trust, of faith. The law was always based on faith, (coughs) entrusting yourself to the living God. He says, so to actually be an adherent of the law without faith, Faith in the Christ and faith in this God, that makes no sense. And the way he describes it is, they have now pursued, a, they have ignored God's righteousness and pursued their own. That is, he says, they have ignored the way that God has said he will justify people, he will declare people to be okay, namely through faith in the Christ. Instead, having rejected that, they're now trying to pursue their own righteousness by keeping the law having rejected the Christ and rejected the basis of faith. He says the tragedy of this is that it is not ordained of God. It is not God's way to get justified, to be declared to be okay with God. They have invented their own means, which will be ultimately ineffective. This is his controversial analysis of contemporary Judaism, which, as I explained before, applies to today. This is his analysis. But the second thing he says is this. The way is still open. The way is still open for them. Chapter 10, verse 11. You can see here. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him, that is the Christ, will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And what he goes on to say is it's not by works, 
It's not by obedience to the law that they're going to be declared to be right. The way that they can be declared right is if they put their faith in the Christ. The way is still open for them, but it has to be through faith in the Christ. Second thing he says is though, the consequence of that is we must proclaim the Gospel. If the only way that people can be saved is actually by putting their faith in this Christ, then clearly the message about that needs to be proclaimed. Both to Jews and to non-Jews. Everyone needs to hear it because he says faith comes through hearing the word about Christ which is there in this Christian message, this Christian gospel. Okay, so that's the second thing he says. The way is still open so the gospel of Christ must still be proclaimed. Third comment that he makes is this. But God has not rejected his old covenant people. And he makes this clear in two ways. First of all, in chapter 11, verses 1 to 10, he talks about a remnant. I represent the remnant by continuing on this line or at least a small section of it. Paul makes the point that actually God hasn't abandoned his old covenant people, the Jews. There has been a remnant chosen by grace who have put their faith in the Jewish Messiah. Have a look at chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. And then he gives the easiest example you can ever think of. The easiest example you can ever think of if you ever ask a question is yourself. And that's what he does. He says, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. So there's at least one Jew who's come to faith in Jesus, namely Paul. He's not the only one though. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. And he goes on, he talks a bit later, if you jump down to uh, verse four, uh, verse 5, sorry. so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. He's saying there are people who, who, from Jewish background, who put their faith in the Christ, this faithful remnant, they've been chosen though by grace. It's not those who have decided to do it by works. Those who, who put their faith in Jesus as a result of God's grace. So, first of all, then as I said, there's Paul himself, but then there's the Israelites who have faith in Jesus. Though he acknowledges here, and we saw this last week, there are many who have been hardened. What about the great mass of Jews over here who rejected Jesus as the Christ, who have been hardened? What about them? And this is where he says something that's truly beautiful. Something that's truly beautiful. Fourth point here. God has not rejected his cold covenant people because there is an opportunity for their regrafting. Now, I don't know anything, to be honest, about olive trees. But Paul is going to give an illustration here in chapter 11, uh, in verses 11 to 32, about olive trees. And so I went to, you know, Google Images and I went to sort of Wikipedia and I learned all these things about olive trees. Apparently there's this thing you can do with olive trees that if you have you know, a, uh, an olive tree that's been growing in the ground, you, you can cut it off so it's almost just like a stump. You can then take an olive branch and 
graft it onto the stump and it will bind itself to the stump and draw life-giving sap from the stump and, and grow. Apparently this is a normal thing to do if you've got an olive grove. Anyone here have an olive grove? So none of you have done it either. I know more amongst a bunch of ignorance. Like, that's not really a great kind of thing, is it? I don't know any more. But that's what Paul's talking about. And this is what he says. He says, this, God's old covenant people, this is God's carefully cultivated olive plant, olive tree. It has a root system. What is the root? Well, the root here in this passage, I think, are the promises God made to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God made these promises. He gave them then the law. He gave them then the Christ. But many of his own people, descended from Abraham, rejected that Christ and so God cut off that branch. But what he then did, based on the work of Jesus as the Christ in his death and resurrection, he took a wild olive tree This is a wild olive tree. These are the Gentiles, all the non-Jews in all the world through time and space. He took this wild olive tree. He took a branch in his mercy. He took a branch. He cut it off the wild tree. He grafted it onto his cultivated olive tree. What an outrageous, crazy thing to do. And he grafted on this crazy branch of Gentiles who have received God's mercy. Though they were disobedient, they've received God's mercy and put their faith in Jesus Christ and now they are part of the tree. How amazing is that? That's astounding. And guess what? That's you right there. If you are a Gentile, a non-Jewish believer in Jesus you, by God's mercy, have been grafted into his tree such that the promises he made to these patriarchs have come true for you. That is God's mercy to you. But that's not the end of the story. The amazing thing is that then he says he will regraft these cut off branches back into the tree if they put their faith in Jesus. There is an opportunity for regrafting these native branches if they'll put their faith in Jesus. And when Paul sort of steps back and thinks about this, this great grand plan of God, he makes an astoundingly deep observation in chapter 11 verse 32 where he sort of finishes. He says, he reveals, if you like, God's MO, God's modus operandi, God's way of doing things. God, he says, has bound all people over to disobedience so that he might have mercy on them all. He's saying the way that people become part of the great glorious people of God is that he has bound all people over to disobedience. The Gentiles were against God. The natural branches who've been hardened against God. He binds everyone over to disobedience that he might have mercy on them all. The only way anyone comes back to the tree is part of this people is by an experience of God's mercy. Not by anything you deserve. Whether you're from a Gentile background 
or a Jewish background, it is always by mercy that you're engrafted into this tree through faith in the Christ. Is God's great mercy. That's why we've called this series on Romans God's transforming mercy. Because that's the big news of how God's interacting with the world. But he says a few other things here as well. How will God do this? How will God bring the Jews, this, these natural branches, back into the tree? God is going to use envy. And this is a very strange thing, really. What Paul says in chapter 11 is he says, as God's chosen apostle to this vile tree, the Gentiles, he says, I make much of my ministry. He says, I go around and I go to the synagogues and I say, you know what? The Gentiles in Macedonia, the Gentiles in Arcadia, the Gentiles in Thessalonica, they are all coming to faith in the Jewish Christ. Well, that doesn't seem right. We're the Jews. They're the Gentiles. They're having faith in the Jewish Christ. Yes, and guess what? They're receiving the promises made to our patriarchs. What? <laughs> yes, yeah, the Spirit. The promise, the promise, Spirit, sign of the new covenant, the Gentiles are receiving it. But I haven't received it. They've got it. <laughs> that doesn't seem right. Well, guess what? You put your faith in Jesus the Christ and they come to you too. Through envy, God is going to bring his old covenant people back into the tree. As not only we just proclaim Christ, but we actually proclaim the, his benefits to all. So yes, God is going to use envy, and in this way he says, all Israel shall be saved. He's not saying all of the native branches, he's saying all of God's, those who receive God's promises will be saved. In the same way he used Israel in that way, I think, back in chapter 9, as uh, not all Israel are actually Israel. Okay, we need to wrap up. So this. Remember I put up this paradigm at the beginning? Here's this paradigm from these chapters of how we are to do, I think, in a Christian way, interfaith dialogue. How does this play out for you if you're a Christian? I think it means these things for us, just reflecting on what Paul says in these chapters. First of all, no pretending all are right. So, consequently, we are going to keep saying that righteousness from God comes only through faith in this Jesus. We're going to proclaim that truth. We're not going to pull back from it. Righteousness from God only comes through faith in this Jesus, but we're not going to do it with arrogant superiority. In fact, modelled on the Apostle himself, we're going to acknowledge it is only by God's mercy that anyone is grafted in. No one speaks from a position of self-righteousness. We all speak from a position of an experience of God's undeserved grace and kindness and mercy. But we're going to also extend a genuine invitation to all to embrace this truth. Because faith in the Christ, which is the only means of salvation, comes through this word that is proclaimed. So we're going to keep proclaiming Jesus on the campus in this Interfaith Week and every week, as we've done in the EU for 81 years. Because it's only through faith that you can come to salvation. But we're going to do it with heartfelt, genuine concern. As Paul talks about here, our heart's desire and prayer is that they may be saved. So why don't I lead us in a prayer that we might do that. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you have revealed these words to us in Scripture to lighten our darkness and point us to Jesus your Son, 
the Christ. And we pray that you might deepen our faith and trust in him and that you might bring many to acknowledge that he is indeed your Christ, our Saviour, that they might put their faith in him and that they, like us, might be grafted in to your people by your mercy. And we pray it for Jesus' name's sake, for your kingdom and your glory. Amen.